Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Justin shares his impressive path with us. We cover how he was able to break into Goldman Sachs on the high-yield trading desk directly out of a non-target university, what his internships were like, how he was able to build relationships, and what has changed now that he has moved to the buy side at Oak Tree. Listen to hear how his work ethic, interpersonal skills, and attitude made all the difference. Enjoy. Justin, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So it'd be great if you could give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from New Jersey, grew up a, uh, a Jets fan and a Yankees fan, unlike your hat over there. And we may, we may have some difficulty on this uh, podcast, but but grew up in Jersey. And then uh, when it came time for college, I ended up going down to Virginia to James Madison University. And when I was down there, I kind of got involved in their student investment fund, which really opened my eyes up to the world of finance and got me to kind of fall in love with investing. Uh, so from there, I spent... Uh, one summer do, working in wealth management as an intern. Then I spent two summers at Goldman Sachs working on their trading floor uh, in sales and trading, rotating between kind of different groups and different desks. Uh, and then I ultimately got hired full-time to work for Goldman coming out of school. And I worked in their leverage financing sales business, which is basically I focus on high yield and distressed debt, debt sales. Um, my job kind of while I was there is to really focus and cover the largest asset managers and the hedge and largest hedge funds in the world and basically help them execute the trades they wanted to in the marketplace. We can get into more details about that later on, but uh, after spending almost five years at Goldman, uh, I ended up transferring over to the buy side and took a job with one of my clients at the time, Oak Tree Capital. Mm -hmm. So now at Oak Tree, I've been here for almost five years as well. Uh, And here I focus on trading and I specifically focus on kind of high yield stress and distress markets. So trading bonds within those, within those asset classes. Very exciting time for you guys. Oh, it's been uh, it's been a heck of a ride the last few weeks. Yeah, so we're just just for context for people who are listening to this now. Um, it's April seventeenth today, so this will probably come out you know early May. But um, so back to your to your jet fandom before we dive into the thing. Were you are you old it enough hurts. to remember? Are you are you old enough to remember the butt fumble? I'm old enough to remember the bump fumble. There's there's some low points in my life and stuff that I never want to think about again. And most of those happen on Sunday afternoons, unfortunately. Mark Sanchez, man, yeah. man, yeah. So that, yeah, it brings me back. I mean, the Patriots now don't have Tom Brady, so it'll be interesting to see what happens um, in in this uh, upcoming season. The Jets, how are the Jets looking? Like, what do Listen, you think? Let, let's just be real, okay? You guys still have Bill Belichick. You guys are still great. You're going to find a way to win, whether it's through deflating footballs or spying on practice. <laughs> like, the Jets are going to finish at the bottom of the division again. I'm, I'm pretty sure you just 
the you just expect the worst yeah. and then hopefully if they win a couple of games you'll be happy at the end of the year yeah i don't know is, is darnold still the qb yeah darnold's still yeah. our guy with that flashy red hair nice okay well yes i don't know that i don't know that much about i it's funny because we've been spoiled for so long as pats fans like it's almost like i was hoping the pats would sign brady just as a thank you and whatever. But I, I got the feeling that they wouldn't give him like more. It's just so he, they're so ruthless. <laughs> not giving, not giving him like more than a couple we of years. You know what I mean? We could like, have a whole podcast going into that conspiracy theory of what's going on there too. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe at the end I'll, I'll get your thoughts once we hit. Let's, <laughs> let's go back to the, the, the whole point of the podcast to talk about your career, talk about your transition. So let's go back to undergrad before any of this started. Yeah. Um, did you were you familiar with kind of finance Wall Street in general before going into undergrad high school? What kind of prompted this whole interest in finance or even sales and trading? So kind of I would I would even take it a step back going to middle school and high school. I uh, I come from a family of medical professionals. My dad was a doctor. His dad was a doctor. My mom's a nurse. My dad's mom's a nurse. So kind of just grew up thinking that hey, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people. I wanted to get into the medical field. But, you know, as a lot of your listeners are aware, like going through all the schooling that you need to go to through to become a doctor, it's a long time. And medicine's changed a lot over recent years. And I just remember talking to my dad one night. I'd written a scholarship essay, how I wanted to go to Stanford and play baseball and study pre-med. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad was like, listen, like, I really think you should consider business. I think there's a lot more opportunities there. I think you'll be you know, exposed to a lot more in your life and you'll learn a lot more. So from that kind of point forward, I thought I wanted to get into business. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what part of business, but you know, what, what high school or middle school kid does, right? It's just business. You'd be surprised um, on Wall Street Oasis, we're getting more high school kids. <laughs> scary. <laughs> a lot of gutters out there, but yeah, no, I was in the same boat. I had, my dad was a cardiologist. And so he was, he was saying the same exact thing. He's like, I don't know if you want to go the medicine route. It's getting harder and harder. Yeah. But then ultimately what ended up happening is we, when, when I started looking at schools, uh, my dad and I went up to uh, Bentley college in Walton, Massachusetts one weekend, and they have one of the most beautiful trading rooms you've ever seen. And I just remember walking through it with my dad and him being like, this is the stuff you want to do. This is the stuff you want to learn and know. Cause I would always see him uh, at home with like CNBC on in the background and like, I just never understood what it meant. And then learning about the Great Depression and history class, you start to learn more about the economy and what really happened with the stock market. Mm-hmm. So kind of that, that whole trip up to, to Bentley really kind of solidified the idea for me that, hey, like this finance route's pretty interesting. And you were, so I ended up you going were like to, a senior in high school at that point? or Yeah, basically a senior mm-hmm. in high school. So I ended up going uh, to James Madison and uh, tried walking on the baseball team. I ended up getting, not making the team, getting cut. And uh, that next day, there was like a student organization night uh, on campus. And so I'm like, well, I have nothing else to do. It was at the kind of low point in my life to that career. And so I just started walking around this kind of all these different uh, like uh, stands to see kind of what student organizations I can get involved with my free time. Mm -hmm. And there was the student investment fund at JMU. It's called the Madison Investment Fund. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a couple of guys there. And I just remember my dad saying to me, like, this is the stuff you want to get involved with. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was the perfect opportunity, you know, to get back up on, you know, after getting knocked back down and, and re, like, kind of just redeploying and kind of redirecting my passion to something different. And were that's kind of how I got involved with world finance. Were you a good student in high school? Or were you like more the baseball guy who like, you know, did okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I was, I take a lot of pride in my work ethic. 
And basically, you know, what I would do every day is obviously go to school in the morning. And then once I was done with practice, call it six, seven o'clock in the afternoon, mm-hmm. I'd work in my backyard on skills till eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. sitting out there working on kind of defensive, defensive things, working on hitting, trying really to hone my skills. And then basically would start doing my homework at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I took a lot of pride in my education and I did graduate you know, with a very good GPA in high school, I think I was carrying about a three, five or a three, six. So nice, nice. I, I did, was able to do both. And in college, I was able to carry, uh, carry, carry well. both work loads and do well, well too. Very cool. Um, so you're, you're at, uh, James, Matt, any, any reason you went there, any thought process in terms of like, <laughs> you know, because, um, obviously it's not like a super target school or anything yeah. like that. Did you know anything about that stuff? Obviously your dad's in medicine, so you're probably not. <laughs> yeah. So it's a funny story. So when I was putting my list together, schools that I wanted to apply to mm-hmm. my junior year uh, in high school and kind of go visit that summer and then the, the next year with my dad, uh, I put together a list for my dad and it was a list of every school that played in the College World Series that year. Um, and so I took that list to my dad and he said, where did you come up with these schools? Because it was like Stanford, UNC, UV, UC Irvine, right? Rice University, like all these different schools. And my dad's just like, how did you come up with these? <laughs> they're like random. I'm like, well, I'm like, dad, they're all playing in the college world series. They're like top notch baseball programs around the country. This is what I want to do. I want to play baseball. Yeah. And he's like, Justin, I want you to focus on your schoolwork and baseball second, go back upstairs, go take that Princeton review book that I bought for you. That was 75 or a hundred dollars, whatever it was, and actually read it and see where you can go and get a good education in business. Mm-hmm. and maybe play baseball at the same time if things work out. Yeah. So I kind of went back and kind of revisited my list. So I ended up applying to a bunch of different schools. And ironically, JMU was my safety school. Uh, I only put it on my list because one of my really good friends was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's two years older than me, and she just spoke so highly of it. And I saw that they had a top-ranked baseball program in the CAA. Mm-hmm. And then I also saw that their business program was ranked top, one of the top 25 in the country. So mm-hmm. I was like, all right, well, this is perfect. And you know, when I looked at the SAT scores and I looked at the GPA stuff, I'm like, this is perfect. I qualify. Like it yeah. should be fine. Yeah. And it turned out Jamie was the only school I got into of the eight schools I applied to. <laughs> uh, so I went to go see all these other schools and it ended up just going to JMU on a whim. I never saw campus before my first day. Yeah. Or I guess they invite you there for orientation, but until orientation, I never really saw campus. Right. And uh, ended up being the best four years of my life. I met the best kind of my best friends. I met some of my greatest mentors, greatest friends, and, and some of the best professors I've ever had while I was there. That's awesome. So it sounds like you, you ended up at the right place. It, it all worked out. That's awesome. So you, um, so you're kind of going through, you know, you kind of already have an idea of you want to do something in business. That's super broad, right? So you don't know, yeah. own my own business, go into wall street. Did you know, when did you kind of start getting an idea of what that meant in terms of like, okay, this is investment banking. This is private equity. This is, yeah. this is when, did, when did that start coming? Well, I think it's worth pointing out too that I, I was a freshman in 2007. And if a lot of your listeners remember, we had one of the greatest financial recessions of all time, mm-hmm. uh, 2008, 2009. So I, I came into JMU study, majoring in finance and I'm like, okay, this is what I want to learn about investing. And then I saw all this stuff unfolding in, in 2007 when I got to campus and I'm like, it's probably a good time to study economics too. So I took down a double major in, in econ and finance just so I can understand what was going, or going on in the world around me. Totally. Uh, and then by getting involved with the student investment fund, 
I, you know, I befriended a lot of upperclassmen and just looked at them for guidance because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where I should be focusing my career efforts. Mm -hmm. So I, be, I befriended two guys, uh, one by the name of Kurt Martins and one by the name of Matt Russell, who are to this day, like I call them my big brothers. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I really appreciate and I love those guys. And they, they guided me and they, they kind of taught me about what the world of finance was all about. And a lot of what they learned was from your block mm -hmm. uh, and from other blocks. Uh, and basically saying like, listen, this is what investment banking is. This is what sales and trading is. This is what wealth management is. And so I talked through those things. I talked those things through with them mm -hmm. and then ultimately figured out, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life and I've always had that competitive edge. And I don't think there's any place in the professional world more competitive than a trading floor. And that's where I was like, okay, I want to focus my efforts into to getting onto wall street and getting on a, on a trading floor. Very cool. So, okay. You kind of knew this, what, like by sophomore year, almost like you had a pretty good foundation. It sounds like, like a pretty good understanding. And did you go the traditional route of like freshman summer, you're doing like a private wealth management internship. Was that like, yeah. you started getting that on your yeah. own? So what Matt and Kurt told me is like, listen, you got to get in early. He's like, yeah. I, they were just like, just start applying, just start applying anywhere and see what you can get. And you know, yeah. 2007 things started to get a little bit shaky Mm -hmm. And then 2008 is when things really started to fall apart. And I was applying for internships, you yeah. know, all over the place in 2008 as a freshman. And, you know, no, no firms are really looking to take on interns at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting an internship uh, with a wealth management firm that was about 20 minutes away from my house mm -hmm. via my baseball coach. Yeah. And uh, he was like, hey, like, I know you don't have a job this summer, like, I know this guy whose son used, you used to coach at baseball camp who mm -hmm. does a lot of business with this wealth management firm. Like you should go and try to see if you can get an, an interview there. And so mm -hmm. they lined up an interview for me and it worked out great. And I had a great experience there. Uh, I learned a lot about how the markets worked, how the markets function. You were you doing was, a lot of like cold calling for them or were you doing a lot of like database management work? What were you doing? For uh, I was basically helping them manage their client portfolios oh, wow. uh, and doing a lot of due diligence. And, and, you know, a lot of these guys spent a lot of time doing uh, fund manager due diligence. So I would be on the phone with different portfolio managers asking questions about how they're positioning as the world's unfolding and blowing, and blowing up, you know, what's wow. and, and oil prices were soaring, what their views were on oil. Yeah. Um, so you know, spent a lot of time doing that, but you know, was that I, tough? I did you that. have the confidence doing that? Like right out as a, like a freshman summer, like, did you did that? Why did they, what do you think made them confident enough to let you even talk to fund managers and stuff? Cause it wasn't business that they had and they were just yeah. diligence or what? It's just, you know what? Like, I think it was one that they, they just needed help and they wanted, they wanted somebody who could help. And two, I really took a liking to this stuff. I really started to to fall in love with it. Like I mentioned earlier, that baseball was my one true love in this world. And when that got kind of taken away from me, I just redirected my, my efforts to something different. And, and, and the world of finance and investing became that. Yeah. And I just took it upon myself to learn a lot and ask a lot of questions. And I would go into these student investment fund meetings every week with a blank piece of paper and a pen and would literally write down everything I didn't know and would go home and research it at night or read the Wall Street Journal and highlight words that I didn't know and go and research it. Just keep asking more and more questions. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm sure you got up the curve pretty fast, it sounds like. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, <laughs> there's still a lot I don't know, but yeah. it was good to be kind of ahead of, of my class at the time. If I really wanted to break into Wall Street, yeah. you know, as a sophomore in my sophomore summer, like I really didn't need to show people that, 
you know, I can compete at the highest level, especially coming from a non-target school like JMU. Especially coming in 2008, 2009, the worst possible time to be looking for an internship. Yeah. So yeah, if anybody thinks they have it bad, imagine coming from a non-target school during the great financial crisis. So if you're feeling sorry for yourself right now, yes, it's hard, (laughs) but it can be done. So, okay. So tell me, how did you, so Goldman of all places, what what did you do to kind of start chatting with people? Was it alums? How did you kind of get, get an angle in there? So my angle into Goldman was that they, first off, like that, that whole summer, right, just going into it was sending out as many resumes as you could and just networking like crazy and just casting a really, really wide net. Mm-hmm. And one of the most beautiful thing about JMU is our alumni network really cares about the students and we, they really do a lot to give back. Yeah. And I just would get a lot of time on the calendar with people for coffees or just a quick call to just understand what their job was and understand what they would do. Mm-hmm. They were in my shoes and just kind of what they did, you know, and I remember talking to one alum who was like, I just showed up at the door at Deutsche Bank and I'm like, here's why you should hire me. I'm like, well, I don't really know if I could do that. But, you know, <laughs> I did, I did spend a lot of time getting to meet as many people as I could if they were on campus or if I got their email address or if I got their phone number, you know, cold calling, cold emailing, that, that's what you have to do because, you know, the responses I'd be getting back from people were, Hey, listen, like really appreciate your hustle, but we don't know if the firm's going to be in business tomorrow, right? Like that's what people are really worried about. Yeah. Um, and then the way Goldman came about was I remember my freshman year. So backtracking a year, mm-hmm. they were down on campus. Three alums were down on campus, just doing a presentation of what wall street was mm-hmm. um, because they were just good guys that they wanted to come back and help. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were two managing directors and there was an analyst mm-hmm. and the room was filled. There's probably 150 people in this room meant for 20. And I'm sitting on the floor in the back of the room, literally sitting on the floor, writing down every word that they're saying, because I didn't know what this stuff meant. Yeah. And once the presentation was done, everyone in the room, all 149 other people in the room, rushed to go talk to the two MDs. And I was the only guy who went to go talk to the analyst. The only and one? I was the only one to go talk to the analyst, because everyone wanted to go show their, res- their resume to the MD. I was like, well, I know I'm probably not going to be their first kind of choice. So why spend time talking to the MD when I can make a relationship with, with the, uh, with the analyst. And so a uh, guy was a great guy's name, Steve Porter. We're still really close friends. And I always tell this story to people when, when we meet. Um, but yeah, so I talked to Steve and I, and I just kind of built a rapport, a relationship up with him. And that sophomore summer, I had heard that Goldman had a sophomore kind of spring break program that they were doing. Right. And so I'd reached out to Steve and I said, Hey, Steve, like, you know, would love to see if I can qualify for this and throw my resume. And he's like, all right, well, give me a couple of days. Let me see what I can find out. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Steve ultimately came back to me two days later. He's like, here's this girl's name, Taylor, reach out to her. She's expecting your call. And so I think Taylor was just under the impression that I was just calling to learn about the program. And I was like, no, nah, I'm treating this as an interview. And I prepared, I had my A game on ready to go. And I treated it like it was a phone interview. And next thing you know, I get an email a couple of days later. Hey, Justin, like, we don't want to put you in the spring break program. We want to, we want to accelerate you the final round of interviews for the summer internship program. And why and do you so, think that? So tell me about that, because that's, that seems to be like what you did there seems like a low, like very hard to do. Yeah. So there were a couple, it sounds like very critical points that got you to the number one's building. The key part was building that relationship with the analyst because then yeah. it's clear that he vouched for you to this person who was running this program. I mean, yeah. in terms of, from my perspective, from what you just told me, 
Do you think that was the most important or do you think the prep of the interview and impressing her was more important? Do you feel like they both, they both played a, a part? And then tell me about exactly yeah. what was that interview like? Yeah, I think, I think it was both parts, right? I think, yeah. I think impressing Steve and, and letting him know, Steve was the analyst, impressing Steve and just showing him kind of what type of person I am, mm-hmm. showing him the grit and the hustle and the kind of just the networking skills that I have and the communication skills. I think that was played a huge part in it. Yeah. Uh, but then just impressing the the woman from HR, Taylor at the time, and just showing her that, listen, I'm prepared. Like I came to play, like I'm ready to go. And I didn't, I didn't fool around. And, you know, you asked her some preliminary questions about the program, but then like I showed that I had an understanding of Goldman. I had an understanding of the different divisions and asked deep questions about the divisions. And then I would, I would, you know, as she was talking, I would insert kind of some lines about how I was a hard worker. I was a hustler. Like I'd run through a brick wall. I would love this opportunity. I can learn quickly. I'm coachable, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm somebody who's very determined and persevering and like Brazilian, like just learning how to insert those key words into the conversation so that she can see that I'm not just some average random student who's picking up the phone and calling. Like I was prepared. I was put together. You're like, I'm ready to work 120 hour weeks. I don't care. Just give it. I'm ready. I'm ready to come into the office this afternoon and sleep all day. I got my suit on. Like I'm ready to go. And that's, (laughs) that's just how I treated it. Yeah. Interesting. So you feel like, um, talk to me a little about that, that conversation with the analyst while everyone's huddled around the MDs was, uh, was he kind of surprised that you were coming over to talk to him? Was, how did you kind of initially, you obviously introduced yourself yeah. and then, you know, maybe thanked him for coming out. But what, what was kind of, how did you, how did you make him feel comfortable? How did you show that you had good communication skills and develop that rapport? So it was <laughs> less of a, like a super formal thing and more like a conversation. I literally went up to him. I said, Hey Steve, my name's Justin Qualia. I'm a freshman. I'm the only person in this room who's probably not trying to get hired right now. I just want to make sure like, I'm learning and meeting people. Like I want to make sure my resume looks good. Like I've been really impressed by what you had to say. Like, thank you for coming down. I, he was also part of the student investment fund. So I just said, Hey, I'm part of the student investment fund as well. And I'm like, you know, I, all these guys are trying to fight for your time to, to, to get a job. Like I would love to just pick your brain one day when you have 30 minutes to actually talk mm-hmm. and, and, and really just learn more about what you would do if you were in my shoes. And I wasn't aggressive. I was just like, listen, like when it fits your schedule, like would love to talk more. Yeah. And I think he was really taken back by that. I was like, okay, wow, this guy actually has interpersonal skills and right. is a human. And he sees that people around me are kind of just, they're like, they see prey on the ground. They're going to go chase it down. Right. Whereas I was like, listen, I know that maybe I'm not the prime candidate right now, but I'm not going to waste this opportunity to get to meet somebody. Right. Okay. That sounds fair. I mean, yeah, I think it, it, it's almost like you're demonstrating a little bit of restraint. Yeah, um, you're able to demonstrate that restraint and understand the situation enough to kind of almost, um, in a way, subtly, like some, subtly jab at it. I a was, bit. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's like it's like life, right, or like a relationship. Like you have to know when to push and when you have, when you can pull back. Yeah, for sure. So you're okay. So you're kind of coming through here. You get accelerated to you basically get an internship offer. Or the interview. Yeah, Sorry, final, you, final round interview. Yeah, you get a final round interview for the interview offer. Tell me how stressed you were about that. <laughs> uh, I basically so the interview was two weeks after that. I stopped everything that I was doing for two weeks, and other than going to my classes, yeah, every single night when I got home, I sat in the study hall in my dorm, and I just and I just learned everything I could about Goldman, everything I could about the markets. I read the Volt Guide. I read any interview guide I could. Mm-hmm. I did mock interviews with people. 
I would go and basically stare at myself in the mirror and practice interview tactics so I could see kind of what body things I was doing with my body to fix that, um, my body language. But then basically just spent a lot of time talking to Kurt and Matt and the other upperclassmen and my professors, just how do you prepare? How do you prepare? And, you know, I reached out to a lot of alumni. And again, I, I, I throw it back on our alumni. I think they're the most amazing people. And when I would reach out to these guys and say, hey, guys, I have an interview at Goldman, they would do anything they could to help me, anything they could. And I really appreciated all that and mm-hmm. would not be anywhere I am today without them. But for those, that, those two weeks period, like all I did was just study, read, and, and, and just follow markets and just ask questions of people. You know, at the end of the day, you only know what you know, right? I, I'm not going to be like a senior level finance major going into an interview as a sophomore. But if I can show that I, I understood the history of the company, understood the, the different um, departments of the company, divisions of the company, mm-hmm. it, it shows that I prepared. And I think a lot of people just want to know that you prepared for the actual interview. Right. So tell me a little bit about kind of, was it in person, live, 20 minutes, half hour, one hour, and tell me like what was the format and specifically how they, um, what they grilled you on. So I literally had the most non-traditional interview of anyone I've ever heard at Goldman. I mean, I think Goldman, everyone is, is, everyone knows you, you have super day after super day interview. Like you may have 15 interviews in one day. Yeah. I I literally, I remember going through similar (laughs) with Goldman. It was like nonstop two on ones. It was like brutal. And you're going to hate me when I tell you this, but I, li- I literally had uh, two interviews, uh, both with two women from HR. Uh, and I just remember one of the people telling me that you want to make your interview a conversation and you want to show that you can build a relationship with the interviewer and you just want to talk like you're a normal person. And so uh, the first woman that interviewed me, uh, her name's Ab- or, um oh shoot, I'm blanking on her name now. Damn it. I'm fine. I'm forgetting okay. it. But she was the, um, she was the recruiter for Duke and I'm a huge Duke basketball fan. I know that a lot of people are probably going to hate me for that, but yeah. I'm a huge Duke basketball <laughs> like fan. like I'm a Patriots fan. Everyone's like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and so as soon as she said that she was a, she was a recruiter for Duke, I'm like, Oh my God, did you go to Duke? She's like, yeah, I'm like I'm a huge Duke basketball fan. Did you watch the game? And we just started talking about Duke basketball. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, the interview was scheduled for 30 minutes. We're 25 minutes in the interview. She looks down at her watch and she goes, Oh my God, like, we've been talking about Duke for 20 minutes, like, or 25 minutes. Like, yeah, I haven't asked you any questions. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah. And so that was very unorthodox. Um, but it just shows that I have interpersonal skills. And I think as you're looking to get into sales and trading, they want to see that you have interpersonal skills. Yeah. Um, especially for sales and trading. Right. I mean, I think absolutely. like, it's all about clients. It's all about like interactions. It's, it's, if you don't have those interpersonal skills, if you can't shoot the shit, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. They, they want to see that you can connect and they want to see that you can sit next to somebody for 12 hours a day. Right. Okay. So, so you have kind of that not unorthodox, we'll call it the Duke interview. I mean, yeah, then, the and then tell me it, when she said, do you have any questions for me? Did you ask her anything specific? Did you kind of, did you, were you like, no, we're good. I mean, yeah, so th- this is always a great question because you know, like, even when people ask me, what should I be asking in an interview? I think the way I think about it is if you have some like logistical questions, sure. Get that kind of, get that asked right away. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when do I expect to hear back? When mm-hmm. next? Just ask one question in regard to that, but don't spend yeah. all your, I wouldn't let that be your first question. I would let that be your last question because right. you can always ask that as you're walking out the door. Right. I would say your first question should reference something that the interviewer brought up, right? Or reference their experience with inside the culture of the firm that they brought up. Right. Um, but show that you were listening and you were paying attention to what they were saying, right? And then I think 
the the, the Can second I stop question and just you, say this is that's yeah. super critical because so many kids come in with a set set certain questions they know they're going to ask and sometimes it's so blatantly obvious <clears throat> that they had their set questions and there was easily a relatable um segment of what the person just told you about that you could have either easily drawn in and slightly changed your question to make it more applicable to what that person had just told you. Absolutely. And, and like link it all together and make it more like a conversation and make it make yourself more personable. It's just very subtle little things like that make a huge difference in terms of the impressions. But okay, sorry, continue. Yeah. No, I, and just to, just to add to that point, I think a lot of times when, when students are preparing for interviews or young professionals are preparing for interviews, they try to memorize responses, right? They try to just literally memorize it like it's a piece of paper in front of them. I think that's the worst thing to do, right? I think you should know yourself well enough and prepare yourself well enough to, to know what points of your life you would reference for certain questions, but you don't want to sound like you're a record, right? You don't want to sound like you're a broken record too, just repeating the same thing. Mm -hmm. But because then what will end up happening is you're going to forget something because you're going to be stressed out. You're going to be sweating. You're going to be nervous. And then you're going to forget something. And then you're just going to trip and fall over yourself. And then you're just going to get all out of whack. Right. So don't try to sit there and memorize anything. Um, but to get back to your question, I think if, if you then have time for a second question, I think the second question should be something a little bit more thoughtful. And what I would encourage everyone to do is if you know you're going to have an interview with that somebody, if it's at an investment bank or private firm or anywhere, try to figure out who you're going to interview with and then do some research on that person and show them that you've put in the work to learn a little bit more about them and then ask them something specific to them. Um, I think that's another important thing to do because again, it just shows that you prepared. And I think people, I think people would much rather hire somebody that they know has done the work, right. Who's ready to play. Right. And it's shown that they care versus somebody who kind of is just like, okay, so uh, when should I expect to hear back? Like, or uh, what do you like about the culture here? Or uh, tell me about yeah. like, <laughs> just, just in the standard kind of boring, you know, uh, kind of questions sometimes you hear out of the out of the, some of the, these courses and guides and stuff. But okay, so you you seem to have had a really great connection with this person. So you had a second interview that day. Yeah, another that one uh, was person. a little more behavioral, kind of the typical behavioral <laughs> questions. Walk me through your resume. Tell me about a time you worked in a team. Yeah. You know, what's your biggest weakness? That dreaded question. Mm -hmm. uh, and just what was your was, answer for weakness? <laughs> I don't know if I could share that one. You, I, you don't want it? Okay. Yeah. I don't think I want to share that one. I got to keep that in the back pocket. <laughs> it again. Okay. Do you feel like, I mean, what I typically tell people is like, it's typically you want to give, you want to give a, a weakness that is uh, not like, uh, not well, like is, is critical for the job. Maybe yeah. it's, maybe if it's a job that's like public speaking, you don't want to say public speaking is your weakness. Um, that you're yeah. on, but always talk about how you're working on it and then trying to improve. So if yeah. like technical ability or mo financial modeling, you can say how you've been, you feel like you're pretty weak in financial modeling. However, you've been taking these courses to try to improve. Um, you've already put in yeah. hours and, um, but you still feel like there's a lot to learn there, especially trying to get uh, reps in the real world. You know, it's very different that just to show some, some, uh, absolutely. I think that and you, you said it better than I could. I would just say, try to be as humble as you can. Right. Like don't, I don't have any weaknesses. I'm perfect. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, like everyone's human. Everyone, everyone struggles with some things. And I think yeah. it's perfectly fine to, to allude to those things. And like you said, you don't want to show something that they're going to be like, all right, red flag. But mm -hmm. you do want to show that, you know what, you're humble enough to acknowledge the fact that, 
you know, you, you do have a weakness and you're working to fix that weakness. So absolutely agree with you there. Yeah. You don't be like, I have trouble being on time to meetings or I have trouble like waking up in the morning (laughs) or like, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I think things around like skills based weaknesses that you can show that you're working towards, even if it's, let's say it's an analytical job. I think saying public speaking is a great one because a lot of people hate public speaking. Um, if you're in a sales job, I probably wouldn't give that as your weakness. <laughs> yeah. But if you're in a, like, if, if you're going like, let's say to a coding job or a, a job, a financial like trading algorithmic job or another data scientist, I think saying that as a weakness is a great one because they're going to, yeah. well, okay, we don't need you to do that. That's fine. <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, um, okay. So you're, you're, you have more behavioral oriented interview. Why do you think, was this on campus? Was this like, this was in New York at one of their offices. So did they fly you in for that? Uh, they, I ended up taking a train, a train uh, okay. but yeah, of course. But yeah, I took a train up. I'm, I'm, this was a great story. The, the train got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And I basically didn't get on the train until I didn't get off the train until basically two hours before my interview started. So my poor dad picks me up in New Jersey at the train station and then gets me to the, the, the Newark train station so I can hop on the path train to get into the city for my interview. Uh, it, I, I cut it pretty close and I left at like 10 o'clock in the morning the day before the actual interview. It was unbelievable. Oh my gosh. So you got there, what, like 20 minutes before or something crazy? <laughs> like, hey, I, I got there about uh-huh. an hour before, but you know, I'm always somebody who over prepares, you know, and yeah. with respect to your, to your, your, your coach, Bill Belichick, like as a Jeff fan, the one thing I do respect about the guy is he, he is so keen on preparation. And I think that's how he's built a lot of success. It's just trying to th- think through all different types of situations, like what could go wrong, right? Or what yeah. would I do if something else present, if something else presents itself or how would I play this situation? Right. And that's why I left 10 o'clock the day before, because I knew like, okay, I'm going to leave 10 o'clock in the morning. God forbid the train gets canceled. I can still get in a car and drive, right? right? Or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, so I got sure there enough, an hour it got early. delayed. <laughs> sure enough, yeah. the train got delayed, but you still made it. I got there an hour early and literally for the hour before my, my kind of my process when it comes to interviews and big meetings is I like to get where I need to be. Like I would say an hour to 45 minutes before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then for, for, for that, like a half hour, I try to just review my notes, think about what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do. You know, if I'm going to meet a client or something like that, do my homework on the client uh, you know, for a third, so I, I, I sound prepared, I sound ready to go. Mm-hmm. And then for kind of 10 to 15 minutes before I'm supposed to be there, I kind of just clear my head for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I put everything away, take a couple deep breaths, walk around for a little and just, you know, I don't try to get all worked up. I just try to get comfortable, get in my zone and be who I am. And then yeah. always, 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 I always show up 15 minutes and check in with security 15 minutes before I need to be there to show that I can be on time. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So you're, you do make it on time. You had the second interview and then is it immediate offer right there on the spot? Like, do they have the, the authority to give you a summer internship offer? What's yeah. That? So it wasn't right on the spot, but it was weird. Like I was obviously super scared going into this. I didn't really know what was going to happen. Like what Jamie UK is going to get an internship at Goldman Sachs. Like, I didn't think it was going to happen, Right. but I had a good feeling coming out. I'm like, wow, that actually went really well. Mm-hmm. And that, that uh, afternoon I ended up going back to my parents' house in New Jersey, spent the night there before going back to school. And, they did give me a phone call and I saw my 212 number come up on my phone and they called and they said, we'd love to extend you an offer for our summer internship program. Wow. And so do you feel like that is tr- That is how typically like a non-target, how it would happen where you kind of get an in with an alum 
they push you to HR and then you're kind of given this kind of off cycle. I call it off cycle yeah. super day for, for, I know there sometimes have now super days for like the target schools and one yep. super day for all the, the non-targets kind of on a separate day. Yep. Is there a reason you think you are kind of given this kind of side, almost a side super day? It's not even really a super day if you just met with two people. So why do you think, you know, it was different for you? Was it just timing? Uh, for me, I think I, one, you got to attribute it to luck and hard work, right? Like I, I spent two years kind of working on that relationship with Steve and, and, and preparing for that, that kind of phone call I had with the woman in HR, right? So I, it, luck, opportunity, but hard work kind of all presented itself. But, you know, to what you were saying, like, I think, yes, a lot of these guys love to recruit from the target schools because they know the quality of the education the students getting there. So it just makes it it makes it more realistic that the candidate's going to work out versus non-target schools. You just, you don't know as much about what type of student you're going to get. And there's just more risk to hiring somebody from there. Mm -hmm. um, not that they're a bad student or not a smart student or anything like that. You just don't know the quality of the program a lot of times. Right. Um, but I, to your point, a lot of, a lot of the banks now have carved out. I don't know if they carved out by percentages or headcount or whatnot, but they do have part of the internship pool, uh, that they do want to be non-target schools. Right. Uh, now, the thing that has changed since I was at Goldman a while ago, right? We're, we're, in, two, we're in 2020. This is like 20, 2008. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of these uh, programs now, they do virtual interviews and stuff like that. So yeah. they can interview more people and yeah. give more opportunity to more people. So I think it is starting to become a little bit more of a level playing field, especially mm -hmm. now as more of the Ivy League school kids take the kind of startup route or going to work in tech and stuff like that. I think there there is still opportunity for somebody from from a non-target school to get the op, to get the job that they want. For sure, yeah, it's definitely there's more information out there, more courses like our course that'll help kind of get kids up to speed um, earlier from if they don't have that that strong career services or or um, materials or resources to help guide them. Yeah, um, so you you kind of got this internship where you're jumping off the wall. What was the were you just like in awe or what was what was going on? Uh, I was super excited. I was thrilled. Uh, I was just excited. What did your dad learn. say? Uh, he was he was pumped for me. He was really yeah. pumped. Uh, but the funny part about all this is, I was still going to commute from my parents' house to New York every day in Jersey. And like, I just I didn't really know how much. Like, they told you how much you were going to make, but I just didn't think that would go very far in New York. And I knew I needed money for school the following semester. Mm -hmm. So like, I was like, all right, I'm just going to commute from New Jersey every day. How and long is that I, to get into the office? It was an hour, 15 minutes oh. door to door. <laughs> so, and I was, I was getting up at three 30 in the morning every day. And I was the first person on the trading floor every day, literally turning the lights on the trading floor every day, because I'm like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm not going to let it pass me by. Mm -hmm. You know, you started to see some of the old schools, traders and salespeople getting super early and you know you develop a relationship with these guys and maybe they don't spend too much time with you but they don't know they're like oh you're that kid and i was that kid i was that kid that got in early was the first one there mm -hmm. but the funny part was to your question about my dad i didn't know how to tie a tie and so yeah. every day when i got home from work my dad like i would go to bed as quickly as i could because i was obviously waking up super early yeah i would always leave a tie on my dad's uh or my parents bedroom door handle and every morning when I would wake up, it would be tied for me to just like slip over my head That's so funny. <laughs> because my dad would do it for me. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I love it. So you were, you were going in, this was your sophomore summer, correct? Sophomore summer. Yeah. So tell me how that went. What was it like? So you're getting in there super early then yeah. you're kind of developing a, 
many relationships with these people. They're just like, oh, they kind of just acknowledge you. Okay, this is the intern. Was it very yep. much like a hazing culture like you typically hear on the trading no. desk where they're like, no. go get us coffee every day? Or, I mean, there is that, I'm sure, like get us coffee. But yeah. what about the, like, what about the mentorship that went on during the summer? Yeah, that? yeah it's, it's, a, it's a whole lot of mentorship, right? And like, uh, I, can, I can only speak to Goldman because that's where I intern. They really do care about these people. Mm-hmm. And they, they just view it as like, okay, I want to start investing in you now. And I don't want to waste my time. And especially if you're a sophomore, I really want to invest in you because I want to see you succeed. I want to see you come back here and I want to see you actually have a good career. Mm-hmm. And the people that I worked with that I were stuck the closest to were, were people that were trying to train me to be just as good or better as they were, right? Because they wanted me to be able to come in and help them do their job, be able to come in and take over their job while they went away on vacation with their family or took their kids to see schools or you know, went on, went away for the holidays or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, you got in early. Sorry, 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 go ahead. Sorry, so you entered in sales, sales and trading. Was it just called the sales desk or whatever? And like, so tell, can you give the listeners a little bit of perspective, like how that's like an investment banking, traditional banking internship? Yeah. So, uh, so I guess the way both programs work is they're normally 10 week programs. The first week or to two weeks is probably like a more formal training program to kind of just teach you some skills, teach you about the business, um, depending on if you're banking or, or, or sales and training. I think banking may actually be two weeks, whereas for, for us, it was only one week. Mm-hmm. And then we did three three-week rotations uh, amongst different desks. So my first summer, my three rotations were securities lending, where they do all kind of control the short selling in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Then I did municipal bond trading, and I did equity derivative sales. Uh, my second summer, I did leverage loan sales, high yield sales, and then I did derivative sales again because I thought maybe I would want to go into the derivatives business. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so you spent three weeks rotating on, on desks. Uh, and basically, what I did every day is I sat on a stool. I literally sat on the stool every single day just to listen to what different people said. And, um, and uh, oh, oh, shit, could you pause for one second? Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Yeah. 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 So I, I basically spent my summers sitting on a stool and, you know, sitting on a stool and learning as much as I could from people, just listening to what they said, listening to words that came up, listening to how they handled situations. I'd, I'd hop on the phone and, you know, they, you, at trading desk, you have two phones or you have a phone and a headset. So they'd be on the headset, they'd give me the phone. And so, you know, your job is to just try to create value, right? How do you be value added in your seat? So, you know, there's certain times a day where you kind of just back off and leave people alone, but there's other times of the day where you're trying to just ask a lot of questions and learn a lot. And there's certain times of the day where you're just sitting there and listening. Mm. And I'll never forget when I was on the muni desk, I was sitting with this guy by the name of Paul Farisi, Paul's old school, old school sales guy. And um, I, I just remember just sitting on the phone for hours on end, literally would just sit there on listening for hours because he never put down the phone. He was always talking to people. Mm-hmm. And then when there was a gap to ask him a question, I just, I just start firing him off. Why'd you say this? What does this mean? How come he's looking at that bond and not this one? Mm-hmm. Right. And just start firing off questions. But then there are other times where, you know, I just listen to what they were saying and maybe a question would come up in the conversation and either the salesperson, the trader didn't know the answer. 
So I was like, hmm, this is my opportunity. So I'd put down the phone, I'd run, I'd go get the answer, and I'd come back and I'd tell them what the answer was mm -hmm. to show that I was actively listening, not just sitting there, sitting like this, you know, with, you know, <laughs> like falling asleep. Lord, yeah. <laughs> so how did you, getting up so early at 3 a.m., how did you stay alert on all these phone calls and listen and were you just pop, pop, like, chugging coffee out there. <laughs> so I, and, and to, to this day now I get up, you know, kind of, well, the last few weeks I've been getting up at 3am with all the volatility market, but yeah. I don't drink coffee. I'm not a regular coffee drinker. Yeah. I don't drink energy drinks. I have an iced tea yeah. uh, with one of the guys here every day. But other than that, I'm not, I'm not big on caffeine, but you. the first summer it was pure adrenaline. It was 10 weeks of adrenaline. And yeah, sure. On the weekends, you, you fall, you'd sleep in a little bit and you'd be exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as you got home at night, you'd be exhausted. But I just took it as this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and I was not going to let it pass me by. I wasn't going to take a single day for granted. While I was there, I wanted to meet as many people as I possibly could, learn as much as I possibly could. And I say that loosely, but I literally meant that. I mean, no, I believe you. I mean, I think it sounds like you're getting up at three, what, 3.30 a.m. you said you're getting up? Yeah, 3.30 alarm went off And then off what, time, what time would you get home on average? Uh, there were days where, uh, you know, first off, I would say they're very understanding. Like, well, first off, I would say they're very good about putting together networking events for you at night. Mm -hmm. So that like maybe one night you're meeting traders from the commodities business. One night you're meeting salespeople from the fixed income business. One night you're meeting bankers to see if you have an interest in doing banking. Mm -hmm. So there's always like a networking event to go to. So maybe call it maybe two to three days a week. You had a networking event that started at six that ended at eight. And then I would just get on the next train and go from there. Um, but if you have to work, you were on getting project, home sometimes at like 10 o'clock at night and then oh, yeah. four hours later. Yeah. I think the latest I pulled was 1230 one night. The, um, oh the head of the muni trading desk was in the office literally to, to 1230 at night. And, uh, I just sat there with him. He must've come over 10 times saying, go home. And I'm like, no, I'm going to stay here until you go until, unless you could, you may need something. So I just stayed there and I stayed there and I stayed there. He kept on coming over. Literally. He's like, all right, I'm going home. And we walked out together at 1230 at night. And I got home, I think probably two 30 in the morning. And I got on up at 3.30 and like nothing ever happened and did it all over again. And you didn't day. have coffee that next day? You went on one hour sleep? No. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I just don't, I don't want to develop the habit of getting no, it's good. the caffeine. I, yeah, trust me, I have a headache if I don't go with it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, wow. So, I mean, just super, super motivated. You just had a great work ethic, it sounds like. So you, you're kind of, you're, you're absorbing a ton of information. Do you feel like, it was recognized like when you were doing those little things, when you're going, like when you refuse to leave, when you, all those little things, you think you were making good impressions and is that why they invited you back for your junior year and then why you Absolutely. full time offer? Yeah. Cause like you also learn that I would go up and talk to these people and similar to the situation with the analysts from Goldman when I was in college, mm -hmm. I'd go up to these people and be like, listen, if you don't have time, I don't get it. I'm not here trying to get a job. I just want to get smarter and I want to learn. And it just shows that you're, you're humble and you're a human. And I think they appreciate that. But at the end of the day, I think my work ethic is the thing I take most pride in. And I will, and I mean this, nobody will ever work harder than me. And yeah. I take a lot of pride in that and I will stick up to that and I will run faster than you. I will work harder than you. I will jump off whatever building I need to. Um, so I just took a lot of pride in that and they saw that. They said, all right, here's a kid who's a hustler. Who's got a lot of grit. Who's got a lot of resilience in him. He's got good instincts. Like, this is, a, this is a kid we want to bring back. And that's what my feedback was. And, you know, they called me a week after the internship ended. It was like, it was the same girl who, who I, I, the woman from HR who 
I had that phone call with that I impressed. And she said, Justin, listen, you impressed all of us. This is a no brainer, but we'd love for you to come back. And that was for your junior year internship. That was for my junior year. And it was the same thing. You, you, well, the best part about it was you went back to campus and you didn't need to fight to get another job, but you know, you just, you came into then the junior year summer with that same attitude, that same reputation, but now you're miles ahead of everyone else because you already have relationships. So now you can follow up with people. You can tell people, Hey, I'm coming back. Like we'd love to spend some more time with you. Mm -hmm. And then as you develop more and more relationships and you build on your network, you know, at the end of the, in my sophomore program, maybe there's only 10 people that were vouching for me at the end of my junior program. There's 20, 30, 40 people that are like, this is a guy we got to hire. This is a guy we got to hire. And so I, and, I get the hard work ethic, but how do you personally like even know where you're going in all this mess? You're barely sleeping. You're working crazy hours. You're absorbing a ton of information. You're looking at like all these different desks trying to make rhyme or reason. Like, what are they actually doing? what is yeah. it in a derivative? What is it? Right. You're yeah. still learning this stuff in school and you're seeing it on the job applied. Um, it's kind of like information overload, but then more specifically, how were you yourself trying to decide and guide yourself over like, okay, I want to be on this desk or that desk. How are you looking and evaluating like specifically within the bank? Um, was it like deal flow? Was it just the, the, the personal relationships you're de- developing with those senior traders or sales yeah. people that like was most important to you or, or was it like, Oh, I, this has the best rep. Like, were you able to learn that? Yeah. Stuff? yeah I think the way I looked at it where it was, it was, I, I kind of bucket things into three groups, the product group, right. Did I want to be more macro? Do I want to be more micro? Mm-hmm. You know, the way somebody put it to me one day is like, would you, if you were to pick up and read the wall street journal, would you read an article about Chinese GDP or would you read an article about Apple earnings first? I was like, well, probably the article about Apple earnings. I'm like, okay, so then you probably want to be more micro. Mm-hmm. Um, then the next thing was kind of the people is like, who, who were like the culture, right? Who of the group, like, where did I see myself succeeding? Where did I want to, what did I want to be part of? What's the culture that I wanted to be brought up in? Mm-hmm. And then the third thing was, is, you know, who are the people in this business that I can see myself wanting to emulate? Who are the people that I want to grow up to be like? Who are the people that I want to train me? And when I saw that in the high yield desk, I mean, it was, it was a no brainer. Like I, I left Goldman five years ago and I'm sure if you ask those, those guys now, like it's like, I'm still there cause I'm still talking to them each and every day. Mm-hmm. These are just people that have just shaped my life and impacted my life so much that I wouldn't be anywhere where I am today without them. And, you know, I still go to them and if I need questions or if I have questions about life things or career things, yeah. you know, they're always some of the first people that I go to. So when I, when you think about product people and kind of where you want to evolve to in your career. That's how I kind of narrowed it all down. And you talked about culture. How did you get a sense of the cultures? Was it like more reputation based on like those conversations, like those, those after hours conversations where you got that perspective or was it more like just seeing how people worked sitting on that stool? Uh, it, it, I think it's a, f- a few different things. Like the one thing is like, I would always just observe, right. And like, mm-hmm you take a step back and you just, sometimes you just look at all that's going on around you, right? Like mm-hmm. our jobs, even today with my current job, you just get bombarded with the news and media and social media and texting alerts and the work, the workload just keeps piling up, piling up. And like, sometimes like you just got to take a step back and just observe. And when I looked at that high yield desk and I just saw the hustle and the heart that those guys had, mm-hmm. you know, to me, that was like, all right, I know that they're going to have the same attitude as I do. The pro I love the product, right? Like, I, I, with all due respect to my investment grade friends of the world, like 
investment grade bonds are going to be okay for the most part. High yield bonds, you don't know if they're going to be around in a couple of years, right? You don't know if they're going to make their next coupon payment. There's a lot more credit risk that you have to, that you have to sit there and do your due diligence on. And so, you know, it's not just thinking about where, where does the five-year trade relative to the 10-year? It's like, are they going to have enough liquidity to make it to pay their coupon in two weeks, right? So there's, a lot like more there's a lot more volatility. There's a lot more potentially for traders to earn a lot more money too. There's a lot more margin potentially in that business or, or is that fair? Uh, no. That that's well, that's a whole other conversation. Just given how, you know what the world looks like in trading post dot Frank and, right. and capital controls and whatnot that the banks need to adhere to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like in investment grade, you're trading things for two, three, four, five basis points. In high yield, you you know are trading things for a quarter point, sometimes half a point. So yeah, there is a little bit more you know spread uh, that you can trade things off of. Right. Um, but but to your question, like like obviously seeing that it was the product I want and just watching like how things evolve these type of people. And then just, I looked up to the, to the junior people a lot on the desk because I'm like, okay, these are the people that are going to train me, right? They're going to help me do a better job at my, my, my job on a pro forma basis. So, you know, getting those people off the desk, going to drinks or going to dinner at night when everything was shut down and just seeing who they were. I'm like, these are the people that I want to grow up to be like, these are the people that I want to train and develop me. And these are the people I want to learn from. And it just was a no brainer decision. And so when you were going through this, these rotations, it kind of, you, you kind of, it sounds like fell in love with the high yield desk. It seemed like you really respected what their hustle, their grit, their, their intellect, and just how hard they were willing to work. Tell me about like the internship itself. Was it, was it more geared to like, okay, you're going to be in sales or trading or how do I think of that split in terms of how, maybe how Goldman did or how other bulge bracket banks did? Yeah. Were you like like the guys you were working, guys and gals you were working with, were they all in sales? Were they all like, was there a split? Like where you were working closely with the traders executing the trades or were you doing the actual trades as well? Uh, so as an intern, you couldn't, you couldn't actually do a trade. You're not allowed to, cause you don't have your series license. Right. Uh, but, but basically, I mean, but like the junior people on that desk, like, are you talking about like, were they doing mostly calls to the clients or were they like, how is that split? Was, oh, it, sales? Oh, oh. was it like they all do, were they doing fully sales and like, then they passed on like the execution somewhere else or? Yeah, no. So they, no. So fixed income's a lot different than equities, right? Where equities, a lot of it's just electronically traded and stuff like fixed income. You have to stand up and shout over your trader. Hey, I'm a buyer of 50 million of this bond and he needs to tell you a price, right? Yeah. Like it's over, it's fully over the counter. So you know, the junior people on that desk were doing kind of the administrative things to keep the desk running. But yeah. at the same time, they were also sitting there kind of executing trades in the over-the-counter market. Got it. Um, and so you like that, ener that energy was, was. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, the energy was, was great. <laughs> I mean, because like you, you, you get up and yell, right? Yeah. Like, if you mess up, you're going to mess up in front of the entire desk. Right. Yeah. And you know, if one trader shouting at you from five rows away, everyone between you and the five rows are going to hear what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I just love that energy. And I just love being at the heart of the market each and every day. Yeah. That's so cool. So you're there for a good run. Uh, yeah. Four plus years. Tell me about how things progressed for you there. And then kind of, when did you start thinking of potentially um, your next step and how that evolved? Yeah. But yeah, so, yeah let's start first, just how things evolved from, you know, when yeah. you first started full-time. And so you obviously yeah. are super ecstatic because they call you yeah. and say, we want to give you a full-time offer. Yep. It's like, uh, dream so basically, yeah, basically, you know, it was good because obviously you're going back to work with a group of people that you already know, you Two know, years, who yeah. you want to, you know, who you want to get really close with, you know, who, you know, who's going to be there to help guide you through your career. But Can you I also one question before you could go sure. on. Do you feel like there was a big difference between you and the other interns? Were there other grinders no. like you where like they were super hard or like, I assume everyone going in there, 
they want it yeah. usually. I mean, if you look at a resume book now for these interns, mm-hmm. they've all started their own companies or started organizations or have three internships. Like mm-hmm. everyone's a hustler, right? Like yeah. there's a, like, if you're, if you don't want to hustle, they're going to go out and find a bazillion other people that want to hustle for that one spot. So yeah. it's the, the quality and, and caliber of people are very high. But do you feel like, there was something that set you apart was maybe your interpersonal was a little bit better or like, do you feel like you were, you were better on the, picking up the technical side of the business or do you feel like you were just better at making the relationships? Cause you I mean, you got the offer, not everyone yeah. gets the offer, right? I mean, I just, I think I just showed them that I was somebody who can hustle, right. And yeah, yeah. that they knew that I was going to be somebody who's going to work my butt off. But at the same time I was, you know, I had the interpersonal skills to be like, all right, this is a guy that I want to sit next to for 12, 15 hours a day if I had right. to. Okay. Right. And, and I think, I, think enough, I didn't mean to harp to, on that. I just wanted to yeah. like, is there anything spe- like, is it, just comparing yourself to their interns? I know it's hard because it's, you're obviously biased and stuff like that. Nah. <laughs> you necessarily want to like toot your own horn, but I'm yeah. just trying to get a sense of like, if you felt more like the interpersonal, especially at the intern level was, was important. Can you give me one more yeah. second? Go ahead. Yeah. So I think the other thing too, is you, you start out and you're kind of, you, you walk in and you like realize like, I'm going to be the low man on the totem pole, right? Like I didn't come in with big expectations. I didn't come in and say, listen, I'm going to be the biggest, baddest sales guy in my first year. Cause I knew I wasn't going to get any accounts. Mm-hmm. I came in on day one and being the guy and, and my, my boss told me this at the time. He's like, you're not going to be a freshman starting on varsity, right? Like just get that out of your head. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just, cause we're not going to let you cover accounts as a first year. It's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So he's like, come in, and expect to carry the water jug, right? Come and expect to carry the equipment bag, right? Earn your stripes. I'm a Yankee fan, right? Like earn your pinstripes, right? Like, so that was, those were the different types of things that, you know, that they preached to me. So that's what I did. I came in every day basically saying, okay, anything that I can do that's better than licking the floor, I know it's going to be a good day, right? So I came in, I set my expectations the lowest they possibly could and just came in and said, okay, let's go. Time to hustle, time to grind. First one in, last one out. Mm-hmm. would not go home until everything that needed to be done was done and knew when it was time to raise my hand, ask questions if I didn't know something, right? I think that was super important. But as kind of the career progressed, yeah, you were, my first call it three years or so, you were, you were the low man on the totem pole. You did whatever they needed you to do, mm-hmm. right? But then kind of years three, four, uh, and, you know, you start to really develop key relationships with clients and you learn how to execute and you learn the arts of sales and the art of trading mm-hmm. and the art of risk management and thinking about how things should be priced and relative value mm-hmm. and, and just understanding how the markets work and learning how to structure deals with bankers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately for me, year four and five is when I first started to get some of my own accounts where I can get my own kind of called P&L attributed to my name, right? Mm-hmm. People who I was the main point of contact to them for the firm. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's when it really started to take off for me. But then year five, I also was doing like a lot of reading over the summer and, you know, just thinking about my career, where could it go? Like, did I see myself, ex- you know, excelling at Goldman and, you know, what opportunity would there be? And um, that summer I was reading my, one of my favorite books is Margin of Safety by Seth Klarman. And I was reading that book and I was just like, you know what, like I really miss investing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really miss like really trying to right, trying to, to, to invest and thinking through investment, thinking through risk and strategy. And, um, yeah, I was like, you know what, like I'm going to keep doing my thing, but like, at the end of the year, maybe it'd be a good time for me to kind of just kind of take a step back and kind of do like a strategic plan. Like, where do I see myself in a year, two years, five years, whatnot, yeah. set some goals for myself. And it just so happened a couple of weeks later, 
uh, Oak tree was looking to hire somebody mm-hmm. and I got word of that. And I was like, Oh my God, like once in a lifetime opportunity to come work with Howard Marks, Bruce Karsh and, and Sheldon stone, who basically were the first people to get involved with Michael Milken on the high yield markets and the leverage finance markets, the distress markets. I'm like, there's no other place that I would leave, no other place I would leave Goldman Fork than an oak tree. And mm-hmm. uh, it just were, turned out to be the right thing. I went through the interview process. I didn't think I was going to get it. I never thought I'd move out to Los Angeles. I grew up in Jersey, lived in New York, like <laughs> never thought in a million years I'd go to LA. Yeah. Um, but it just worked out great. And then I ended up here at Oak Tree almost five years ago now. Wow. And so tell me a little bit about just why you didn't feel like you'd get it just because it's so comp- such a competitive role. And what was the role for given kind of your, your level? So you were like four or five years in at the high yield desk yep. at Goldman. Is it pretty um, standard for, for someone to jump to the buy side from the sell side like that? Or was there, was there a big gap in your transition? Like was there, there skills you have to take another big learning curve for you when you first joined? I think the bigger gap was, and my fear was, why were they going to hire a sales guy to be a trader? Right. And, right. and that's what I needed to convince them of. And so how did you, you go know, about like prepping for that? Just obviously just yeah. talking through trades and stuff. Like, I mean, how did you even, no, I think you just, I think what my strategy was besides all the stuff proving that you're the fit and all that from a technical side to go to your question, mm-hmm. I just proved them that I understood how the business worked. Right. I understood how to build a good rapport with investment bankers. I understood how to structure a deal and syndicate a deal. I understood how to price risk. I understood how to think about relative value and execute on a trade as we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I just proved to them that I knew how the, the, the business worked. Um, and so I think that was what I was able to convince them of. of yeah, I'm the right, I'm the right I, I can fit with you. I fit into what the team that you're trying to build is. And I understand how to just get business done mm-hmm. and how this environment works in this new day and age post.frank and all this. Yeah, and so in terms of, just like the interview process, was it, was it more of, you know, fit where did they, were they asking you about specific trades you had put on or clients, the work you did with your clients? Cause I guess the difference in Goldman and on the sell side is you're doing a lot of like client calls, right? And client, are you, yeah. are you taking them out? You're like, just, is there a lot of that going on where you're like taking them out to dinner, staying close to your clients, making sure you're yeah. giving them good service. Whereas then you jump to the buy side, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit, at least from my perspective and my guess is it becomes more analytical. Yeah. So um, when you were at Goldman, when I, when I was at Goldman, yeah. like as a salesperson, you're the relation, you're like a relationship manager, and, right. but you're, you're a relationship manager. You're a, you're a detective, you're a firefighter, you're yeah. an emergency paramedic. Like you find problems, you put out problems, you fix problems. Like you just make things, you just, you just try to solve problems at the same time as trying to be commercial mm-hmm. for the firm when it comes to your relationship with your client. Right. But it's also like getting to know and understand your client and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish and problems they may be having. Um, so yes, a lot of what you're doing is getting to know them better, but mm-hmm. it's also building up a rapport and building up trust mm-hmm. so that when they have something or they need something, they come to you first. Right. And they say, Oh, you know what? Justin knows how to get it done. Or Justin's team can get this done for me as effectively and efficiently as possible. And like, as an example, that would be like, Hey, um, I need to hedge out whatever this position at this or, or something that technical, or is it something like, Hey, I'm looking to potentially put on a new type of trade. Can you guys get a, this or product? Yeah, it, it could be anything like that. Or even if you want to, even if you want to take it something to more present day related, it's like, okay, well, I've, if I want to look at the high yield universe now, everyone's been looking at high yield X energy now that crude's trading below $20 a barrel. Right. Right. So, but it also may make sense now to start looking at high yield X 
coronavirus related companies too, right? Mm -hmm. So it may say, hey, Justin, how do I hedge out any type of exposure I have to corona related companies? Or how can I put a trade on to like hedge retail, my energy? Like heavy, like heavy retail, heavy, heavy energy or travel, yeah. travel retail. Yeah. Yeah. Could you put a hedge in place using a, a derivative product or a synthetic product that could hedge out any, any further weakness in my, in my Corona book or something like that, right. Or Corona related book, just, just presenting problems and, and that are not traditional problems. Sure. You can do a simple hedge, but they really want to see you solve non-traditional problems for them. That's where you would be very commercial for your client and for the firm. And so when you're now on the other side of the table, and for Oaktree, it's more around, you still have, your clients are really your LPs, right? Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's, but you know, so you're not on the calls with them every day. It's more around you guys internally as a team working together to make sure you're rebalancing, you're putting on, putting on the right types of trades and that type of stuff. And you're, yeah. you're in the high yield area, right? Of Yeah. So I focus on high yield stress and distress credit. So, so it's super great right now for you. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> been, it's been a fun ride. Yeah, uh, you know, just just as a proxy, high yield. The average price of high yield bond beginning of March was like 104, and that fell all the way to like 80, 85, I think, maybe 88, just in the last kind of two to three weeks. So it's been a wild ride, uh, for sure. Wow. But yeah, now like I think the biggest difference is now you're actually a fiduciary on the buy side, right? You actually have clients that you're responsible for, mm-hmm. and and you need to act prudently and diligently and in the best interest of your clients and managing the, their money here at Oak Tree. You know, we, we, we invest a lot of money on behalf of pension funds, yeah. uh, state plans, pension, public plans, uh, endowment funds, foundations. There, there's, there, there's people at the end of this that, that are going to depend on the money that we, that we invest for them. Yeah. And so you, you take a lot of pride in what you do and you put a lot of thought into it. But yes, to your point, a lot of it goes now to, okay, how do I position, you know, based off of what the client's risk profile is and the mandate they give us, how do I build a portfolio that, wants, that will accomplish what they're trying to accomplish? And then for you guys, how do you think about Oak Tree in particular? It's a large, it's a large firm at this point. You know, it's, I don't know how many billions under management. <laughs> well, it's big. Um, is the, is the high yield, how do you guys, in terms of how you're structured, is it something where like you guys are your own kind of separate entity with a certain amount of PL that you guys manage? So like you're working with your team of, I don't know, 20, 50, I don't know, mm-hmm. or in your, the high yield area, but is it something where you guys are, kind of your own separate entity or is there a lot of kind of cross collaboration across like the different so we areas? break things down by strategy right so we have our our, our biggest strategies are our distressed debt strategy our high yield strategy mm-hmm. a strategy we call strategic credit mm-hmm. uh, which is more kind of opportunistic kind of a mix of high yield and distressed like loans we have, loans, we have real estate we yeah. have real okay. estate we have a whole bunch of different things yeah uh, and basically like each of those strategies has their own investment teams but what I like to say is, is the trading desk is like the nucleus of the firm, right? We sit there, we're at the front lines of all the different information that comes in. We sit there as a filter and our job is to filter and distribute all that information to the appropriate uh, investment professionals that need mm-hmm. to know it, right? And we need to build that collaboration at the same time, especially right. like markets that we're in now. When yeah. things get so dislocated and so mispriced, or you may be having certain conversations with high-level people in certain organizations that could be rel- rel- or relevant to other people, the co- that collaboration is big, right? Like yeah. when things are really falling apart, you know, you, you listen to, you know, my loan trader may be saying, hey, I just sold this loan at 90 when that loan was trading at par. And then it's like, all right, well, if the loan's trading there, then the bond should be trading much lower than that. Or, hey, if, 
I just trade this energy bond here. This other energy bond must be trading here. Like that collaboration is just key amongst us on the trading desk, but then just getting that information to the investment professionals and making sure that anybody who would be interested in something like that is interested or is, is aware of the information. That's great. So, um, how has it progressed for you now the, the difference in terms of, so I know when you were at Goldman, it kind of, you gradually kind of were given more and you eventually had client relationships as you came over to Oak tree. Was it initially like you're obviously not running a huge book right away or anything like that, but is, is it considered like where you eventually given PL responsibility, similar kind of deal where, where that's so given or is, how does that work? No. So as a trading desk, we don't, we don't have like our own P and L. We don't have a prop book or anything like that. We yep. just sit there and we execute trades for whatever the strategy needs us to do. Got it. Uh, for me, like it was just getting more involved with the PMs and just asking bigger, deeper questions yep. and, and just trying to understand what they're thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. And at the same time, like talking to the analysts and making sure I'm understanding the credits that I'm trading at a much deeper level. Got it. Uh, so I can, I can figure out, well, where should the loans trade relative to the bonds and where and you're, should the you're bringing a lot of that information play. back to your PMs and you guys are just yep. interfacing a lot and stuff like that. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. So do you, do you like it? Do you enjoy, you see yourself being long-term kind of, uh, in this yeah. world, obviously. <laughs> I, I, I love waking up every day and not knowing what to expect. That's the, that's yeah. to me is the best part about this job is, mm-hmm. you know, you, I know I have a, a 7.30 meeting every day and that's about it. I know on Monday I have a meeting in the afternoon, Tuesday meeting in the afternoon, that's about it, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm not sitting in a cubicle. I'm sitting, a, well, I probably should be saying I'm saying six feet away now from somebody else. But like, yeah, I'm sitting on a trading floor and we're just, you're sitting there, you're at the face of the market. You wake up every day. You, you are, especially in today's day and age, like you wake up, it's like, all right, where are futures? What news came out overnight? What's the Fed doing? Are we, are you hearing anything about success with any of these clinical trials on treatments or vaccines, right? right? Is there, is there a certain part of the market that's blowing up? Are we worried about what's going on in the repo market? Right. And you just, you just don't know, like you just try to react and you just try to learn and react. And then in your downtime, you just try to process and think through things. You know, I'm a big advocate of, 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 of like mental models and just pausing and thinking through different things and just thinking about, okay, using inversion or something like that. Like mm-hmm. using tactics like that to just think about, okay, why is the Fed doing what it's doing? Why is the repo market breaking? How could it, how could it, how could it fix yep. itself? All right. Or what needs to be done to fix it? What are the long-term implications for what the treasury is doing with their stimulus program versus what are the short-term implications? Should mm-hmm. we worry about, should we be worried about inflation? Should we be worried about the value of the dollar? Should we be worried about the USD being the reserve currency? Right. I'm not saying I need to take a view. I'd on say no. Things, <laughs> I'd say like, no because everything else is getting devalued. <laughs> what else is? I mean, everyone's printing, right? It's like uh, fun money, you know. <laughs> it's it's helicopter money at this helicopter, point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh-huh. like you know, I not I don't I don't remember what the exact quote is from from Charlie Munger, but he basically says that I'm never going to have an opinion on something until I can defend the other side's argument better than they can. Right. Like, so that's how I try to look at the world is like, okay, if I, if I see this happening, what's the contrary to that. Right. So I want to come in with a balanced approach to just know from a risk management perspective, as I wear my risk manager hat is like, okay, what could happen if this happens? What could happen if this happens? Going back to the belt bell check, you know, uh, um, similarity that I was alluding to earlier is like, okay, yeah. it's, it's for, it's first intent and they're playing their defense back. Their backs are back. Like, what if I did a run play here? What if I ran, 
you know, a comeback play here? How do I, like, you just start to think about different things and just see how things are reacting to think about what your next step will be. But at the same time, you also just need to be thinking holistically, right? And I was talking to a friend this weekend and and just saying, sometimes like you just want to shut off social media, shut shut off the news and just listen to to people like Howard Marks, Warren Buffett, Morgan Housel, like Mm -hmm. the, the Talibs of the world and just, people who and who can just kind of keep kind of hone things back to you to like just some key principles right because sometimes you you just get so flustered with everything that you're seeing and you can't remember the key basic concepts of why the world functions the way the way it does right yeah and no, i think it's fascinating because you see like you know every time you know it's interesting because the no, great the great financial crisis 08 09 you saw kind of this thing where people are thinking, what's going to be the next thing they get? And no one expected it to be a virus, right? No, no. It's like everyone's looking for the next thing. They thought maybe student loan debt eventually would catch up, you know, all this stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting where, where things go over the next six months. I'm hopeful that, you know, we've had some positive news um, recently about some of the, the trials, the, the emergency yeah. trials and everything. Um, but I think, I don't know. Personally, I think the markets run up very fast <laughs> in a very short amount of time. So I'm, I'm still cautiously optimistic, um, at least on the market side, but hopefully the economy can, can follow suit. Um, yeah. And we won't, we'll get back to at least a semi-normal life over the summer, if not yeah. fully normal by, by next year. Um, anything else you'd like to share? Any, young, any wisdom you would share with your younger self or the young listeners before we call it? Uh, I would just say to me, the thing that's benefited me the most in my career, whether it be when I was in college to where I am now, it, networking. It all comes down to networking. Whether you're at a target school, a non-target school, whether you're in your dream job or you're trying to figure out what your next job is, you always want to be networking. You always want to be meeting people and connecting with people. You always want to let people know what your goals are because you never know who knows who and you never know who's going to be able to help you at the end of the day. I, I mentioned the story about my baseball coach early on. You know, I was a freshman. I just finished my classes. We're sitting there. I went back to the, my high school and I was having breakfast with him. And he's like, what are you doing this summer? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to get a job in finance. And he's like, did you talk to, to this kid's dad? Like he works in finance. Like you want me to kind of put a call into him? I'm like, yeah, it'd be great. And then next thing you know, I have an interview, right? So yeah. like, you just never know who knows who. Uh, and you just want to make sure that you're just surrounding yourself with people that can help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. People that are going to make you smarter, make you better, make yeah. you more thoughtful. Yeah. I think, you know, we harp on that a lot in this, in this podcast. And I think it can't be said enough because so many kids hear it over and over again, but yet they, they kind of half do it or they, they tinker around with it, but they don't get aggressive with it. Even my own mentees, I have a show called monkey to millions where there's a separate mm-hmm. podcast and I, I mentor personally three to four kids in college. And even with them, I'm like pushing them. I'm like, how many people did you reach out to this week? How many calls did yep. you do? How many? And they're starting to get it, but it's been almost six months and I've been harping on them. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, now they're all, they're all kind of, a lot of them are in great shape um, because they already had internships lined up. But now it's like with, with everything going the way it's going, a lot of them are really happy. They put in that legwork earlier and a lot of them are still going through all of this, obviously with the right caveats of like, I know it's crazy busy in the way they're networking. They're being a little bit more, um, you know, a little more understanding. They're not being as aggressive with the follow-ups and whatnot, trying mm-hmm. to give people their space because it's so crazy right now. Um, but I think it's something where being aggressive early, especially if you start like freshman and sophomore year of just keeping your ears open and just having that, that humble attitude. Of, I just want to learn. I'm a hard worker. 
mm-hmm. and the whole world is open to you. Absolutely. You like have good interpersonal skills, you're a hard worker, you're open to learning, and you just ask a lot of questions and you actually take a genuine interest in it instead of just being like, I'm just doing this for, for, to go through the motions. And you try to build those personal relationships. You really can, you're going you're gonna to make that, you're going to make that one connection. You don't realize like that in three years is going to be a critical career move for you or whatnot, or in two years it's going to be a critical opening to your first job out of school, for example. Yeah. I just wish people realized that more that it's like putting in the work now and investing now it's, it's not for nothing, even though the hit rate's super low. Um, you, you've said it perfect. I got nothing to add. You, you were perfect <laughs> with that. I just like to reiterate it because I think people hear it over and over again, but they don't actually start and like just invest in sales navigator, find any sort of link to anybody online. You can start with the alums. Like you, Link, you can start LinkedIn with, best tool ever created Best tool ever. Like any hustlers you can, you can spend 70 bucks a month or something for the thing. And it gives you like, it's probably worth like $50,000 a month. If you actually look at it, like across yeah. like a present value of your like career of the number of Absolutely. people you actually reach out to and like connect with. So um, it's a no brainer, but yeah, hopefully we can convince more people with this, with this episode, just hearing your story, hearing how, how you hustled so much. Um, to, to take this to heart. So thank you so uh, much for your so time. Too. Thank you so much for your yeah. time. I really appreciate no it. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.